Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. So human ingenuity literally, by definition, means human engineering. And for the near future, it's pretty obvious that it's probably the single most important piece of technology that we're all going to need. And I'm not talking about any, any engineers in the room. I'm talking about re-engineering humans and why it's so essential. It's super essential for the short term, but even taking a step back and saying, what's the Latin root for ingenuity is really three components. It's mind, it's engineering, and it's intellect. So from a simple search, if you just are looking online, you'll find the ways that our human minds have influenced how we work, how we think, how we play, how we conduct relationships, even our friendships. It's how we solve problems, how we create problems. It's how we rationalize our thoughts, and it's how we deal with the consequences. And at the end of the day, if you're a PM, this sounds pretty familiar. I feel like it's a day in the life of. So over my lifetime, I've been every one of these kinds of PMs. And I guess my question is, what kind of PM have you been? Whether you're a product manager, whether you're a project manager, a program manager, a production manager, a producer, I don't know if anybody has sort of laid this out to say, like, PM is a broad definition, but we do essentially all the same things. I feel like we're the magic, we're the glue. I feel like we're the inertia, we're everything in between. We're the creators, we're the communicators, we're the leaders, we're the interpreters, we're the mind readers, the business creatives, we're the empaths. We're the trustworthy source. We're the ones that take the higher road every day. We're the ingenuitives. So I kind of feel like we're the power behind the throne, and everyone's like, so what do you do? In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. There's such a group of um, great thought leaders today. So I met this scholar two nights ago, and um, I was sharing with him this creation of this talk and where I want to go with this talk, which is about the five personas of you. And he said, what are the five personas of you? And I said, all right, so let me tell you. And I can share with them, I can share those five personas with you at the break. But he said, you know, so what are you? Are you a creative technologist? Are you a PM? Are you an experienced strategist? Are you a philosopher? And I sort of laughed and I was like, you know what? At this stage of my life, D, all the above. I kind of am I'm everything. But my name is Kathleen Cohen. I am an experienced strategist. I focus on location-based engagement, on theme park development, family entertainment centers, and immersive design. So I spend my world in either real or virtual world building. And it's super exciting. I've spent the last 20 years in digital production and um, everything from, you name it, from games, web, mobile, holography, animation. And now I have after 20-some-odd years, have been waiting for the digital world to meet the physical world and the virtual world, and it sort of is all happening finally. So months ago, I saw this. I saw this in Forbes, which was big data is overrated compared to human ingenuity. And it stuck with me. There was something about it that I thought, yeah, that's true. 
But for the purposes of innovation, for the purposes of being a PM, I actually would even push this a little farther to say that human, you know, our future is overrated compared to human ingenuity. So I hope to share with you today my perspective on the near future, this hyper-reality near future, this future of immersive and product development. This is a, really a talk about human ingenuity, our creative selves, human possibility, human potential, and the human potential movement, and where that meets human-computer interaction, and what does that mean for the next short period of time for all of us. I'll hope by the end that I've given you some context, some permission for as a PM for some brave leadership to really look beyond yourself and yes, be mind readers for an entire team, but hopefully affect some positive change in the workplace. So human ingenuity literally by definition means human engineering. And for the near future, it's pretty obvious that it's probably the single most important piece of technology that we're all gonna need. And I'm not talking about any engineers in the room, I'm talking about re-engineering humans and why it's so essential. It's super essential for the short term, but even taking a step back and saying, what's the Latin root for ingenuity is really three components. It's mind, it's engineering, and it's intellect. So from a simple search, if you just are looking online, you'll find the ways that our human minds have influenced how we work, how we think, how we play, how we conduct relationships, even our friendships. It's how we solve problems, how we create problems. It's how we rationalize our thoughts, and it's how we deal with the consequences. And at the end of the day, if you're a PM, this sounds pretty familiar. I feel like it's a day in the life of. So over my lifetime, I've been every one of these kinds of PMs. And I guess my question is, what kind of PM have you been? Whether you're a product manager, whether you're a project manager, a program manager, a production manager, a producer, I don't know if anybody has sort of laid this out to say, like, PM is a broad definition, but we do essentially all the same things. I feel like we're the magic, we're the glue. I feel like we're the inertia, we're everything in between. We're the creators, we're the communicators, we're the leaders, we're the interpreters, we're the mind readers, the business creatives, we're the empaths. We're the trustworthy source. We're the ones that take the higher road every day. We're the ingenuitives. So I kind of feel like we're the power behind the throne, and everyone's like, so what do you do? So I guess before I jump into this, how many people have not been to Burning Man? <laughs> Raise your hand. Wow, okay. I'm impressed. Um, in San Francisco, it was like zero. <laughs> um, so back to human ingenuity and why PMs are key players in all of this. So this photo totally makes me smile. This is the inaugural photo of El Pulpo, which is a really famous, wonderful art car at Burning Man. And, um, you know, I've been to Burning Man 12 times in my career. And it's been <laughs> the land of ingenuity, the land of human ingenuity. And it's worth talking about. And it's not just some hippie fest, drug fest, rave fest. So let me just, let me like level set the playing field. So it's a phenomenon, no matter how much it's evolved, and it certainly evolved since 2001 when I went my first time. But it's a seven-mile square space of everything from the night sky and the heat and the art cars and the pyrotechnics and the costumes and the people and the gifting economy. It's total madness. It's Silicon Valley totally transported out to the playa for a week or even two weeks or a month, depending if you're working on building. But it's a place that there's a permission to create. And, you know, it's a total space odyssey, without a doubt. In 2005, four years after my first year there, 
I created a four-inch, I co-created um, with another terrific artist, a four-inch gifting medallion that who knew in 2013, um, or 13 years later, not 2013, because I think they announced it in 14 or 15, um, would go into the Smithsonian for the Burning Man art exhibit this past year, No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man. And the only reason why I bring it up is because who knew that some, I would have some contribution in a permanent, um, in a permanent exhibit, it's temporary, but it will be permanent, that's part of the disruption of, of America, of, of corporate America. And Burning Man has influenced corporate America, <clears throat> excuse me, so much. So what do corporations borrow from this culture of ingenuity? It's important to, to point out um, Marion Goodell, who's the founding board member and CEO of Burning Man, she defines this in a much broader sense, along with Microsoft and PopTech and Microsoft's Envisioning Lab. And they have a series of videos online calling, um, I think they call it the changing world of work. So it's a series of videos that you can find around the patterns of tension, what the disruption is like today in the workforce, and mostly how to persevere through it. And the reason why I bring it up is from a PM's point of view, you have a great opportunity to infiltrate every department and have a lens on what's possible. So Burning Man has 10 governing principles that are the non-disputable backbone for sure of its success. And I know that Amazon has 14 principles that they live by. I guess my question to you and maybe talking to you throughout the day is, do you know the principles of your corporations that you work for? Do you live by them every single day? And Larry Harvey, who was the founder of Burning Man, and may his soul rest in peace, he passed away a week after the opening of the Smithsonian exhibit, so that was a big shocker for a lot of people. But it took him 18 years from the first Burning Man to actually document the community ethos. So it took 18 years of trying to understand what Burning Man was about. And the point is, is that it was the actual documentation to shift Burning Man's uh, philosophy exponential, to grow its network, to grow its brand awareness well beyond the playa, well beyond Black Rock City. So, yeah, Burning Man obviously creates a total sense of community. It creates a place where you can cultivate and transform through experience. And what are the ways in which your corporations actually do the same? How do you get that spark of transformation? How do you actually do that internally as a PM, as a developer? So I love this slide. When you really look at this, there's one thing I'll point out, and it'll probably be very obvious to you, but... The ultimate in what a transformative human experience can become maybe is something beyond just an art festival. So it's really beyond a local network. And this isn't even a sell for Burning Man, ironically, at all. I know it sounds like it, but it's really looking at what I've looked at for so many years at Burning Man and saying, how has this now infiltrated itself into corporate? And it has. So Burning Man's shifted consciousness. It's affected change beyond this art festival. So how do they do it? How do they get into agreement internally and externally? So can you see the one thing on here that's just a shocker? You can call it out. Yeah. 80,000 people over eight days, even two months, that are there, and there are zero trash cans. You can't even go to, like, a concert and walk out with overflowing trash cans. So how is that possible? That's, that's insane, insane accountability and sustainability. But how do they get into alignment? So... Ultimately, this is the question, how do you get a global network of executives, of biz dev, of engineers, of UX architects, you name it, designers, marketing, leader, uh, legal, content creators, everybody that you interface with, HR, testers, every single day, how do you get them in all kinds of alignment when everybody has such a different way of thinking? 
I mean, half the time I used to laugh talking to engineers like, are we just never going to speak the same language ever? So you do it through happiness. You do it through joy. You do it through being human first. And who knew that I was going to be the humanist in all these years of product development? But you do it through playfulness, and you do it through the permission of giving people a chance to be human, and it shouldn't be that hard. So if Burning Man wasn't enough about human ingenuity, I want to talk a little bit about human potential and the human potential movement. Just by a show of hands, do people know what this location is? I'm sure you were. We definitely have to talk. <laughs> um, so we've touched on the human ingenuity and the joy and how teams can really tap into it. But you can't talk about any of that until you talk about the human potential movement, which started in the 60s here in San Francisco, Northern California. And the reason being is that our future and our future products and services are definitely going to rely heavy on human potential and what's possible, especially if we talk about AI, artificial superintelligence, and I'll get to more of that later. But here's a human potential question for you. How do we challenge our own belief system to say, I mean, how do we challenge our own belief system to get what we say we want? How do we challenge our own belief system to get what we say we want? Just with that alone, how would that affect you in the workplace? I guess the bigger question is, you know, what will our belief systems even be in the next near future? Is some digital human representing, representing me in the immersive world going to speak for me and know my belief system? That's a pretty scary thought. I actually just got goosebumps from it because I'm like, Jesus, you know, we got a plan for this. And I don't mean to be you know, a, a doomsdayer, but this is very short term and an exponential shift that we're heading into. So this is Esalon, and Esalon is in Big Sur, and uh, they finally built the bridge after last year's rainstorms that washed the bridge out. But um, what's so great about this place was Maslow was a resident and was part of Esalon, and the American psychologist who created our hierarchy of needs chart the father of self-actualization, he insisted that the urge for self-actualization was so deeply entrenched in our human psyche, but it only surfaces once our basic needs are met. So beyond food and water and sex and Wi-Fi and battery life, sort of your top five right now, you know, the top of his chart was creativity and the top of his chart was self-actualization. And his theory that was formed around this concept of cultivating extraordinary potential in all of us, it's totally untapped. So how do we tap into that? So this was founded in 1962. And like I said, it had a goal of exploring the emerging field at the time of human potentials. And it's part theology, it's part new age, it's part spirituality, it's part tech, it's part creativity. It's a total playground like Burning Man as well. But it's a really great retreat center and a conscious shifting institute. And it sounds, it sounds like I'm selling Esalon now too. And I'm not. All I'm saying is that if you let the sweater unravel for one moment in a safe place that's challenging new ideals, you'll be able to affect some positive change. And this history that comes out of here besides Maslow was Alan Watts, was Henry Miller, was Aldous Huxley, Joan Baez was a resident, Hunter S. Thompson managed the property, Buckminster Fuller, Ray Bradbury. So if you go down the list of the folks that have come through this Conscious Shifting Institute, these are the people that have inspired us. So how are we going to inspire this next generation? There's so many writers and philosophers and so many creators of our social context, context that came out of Esalon. And I guess this influenced my life when I was 14. 
Yeah, that was nuts at 14. Anyway, so who are the people today that are influencing your future? They're going to be the ones to continue to shape all of our futures. So are we going to leave it up to data? Are we going to leave it up to AI? Are we actually going to have a say in how we tell our near future? So along with this human potential comes human transformation. And like I asked, who are these people that are leading us? What does our near future look like and who's responsible? I grew up here, so obviously we're shaped by Hollywood and Hollywood stories. And soon enough, everything is going to be gamified and themed. And when I say everything, I am saying your school, your hospital, your office, everything in between is going to be gamified and themed from a physical space to how we play in an immersive world. So is it Peter Diamandis? Is it Ray Kurzweil? Is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Jack Ma from Alibaba? Is it us as parents? Who are these people that are going to shape this future? And do we have a responsibility? Because I want to know who's going to storytell this future for me. Maybe it's Carlos. Where are you, Carlos? <laughs> Maybe it's you with product school. And it'll be all of us listening, watching online that are going to shape this near future. So we talked about human ingenuity and human potential and human transformation, but you can't talk about any of this without human-computer interaction. So HCI, or what I like to call sort of this integrated reality, um, nowadays we as humans can interact with computers with all of our five senses. And that quantified self of us soon will give us so much data that we'll be able to personalize and productize our human experience. It's at this point that I probably would talk about the five personas of you, but I'm not going to for time purposes. So yeah, the interface between humans and computers, are, it's, it's transformable. It's transformative. Um, but it's on twofold. On the machine side, whether it's computer interfaces, whether it's operating systems or programming languages, whether it's neural networks, whether it's machine learning and AI, whether it's voice interface technology, whether it's, you name it, smart environments, the same can be said on the human side. So what's transforming our communication theories, our graphic design and linguistics and social sciences? What's changing our cognitive psychology, our social psychology, and even more factors like UX and UI? The point is, is that man and the machine is merging exponentially in front of our face. Exoskeletons for the disability community are actually pretty sexy. And if you ask me, cyborgism is going to be driven by the disability community. Because if somebody had said, I, I want the opportunity to be a superhero and now is the time, sign me up. And these design constraints that are sitting in the disability community that everybody thinks is like a four-letter word is a perfect gift handed to us on a plate to help solve for all humanity. So how do we even innovate from a place that we haven't fully trusted, we haven't even adopted, we maybe don't even believe in it yet? Ready Player One is already seven months old, or maybe it's only seven months old. And the fact is that, yes, Hollywood still is pushing the, st Hollywood is still pushing the story and the storytelling dials for all of us. So why does it have to be so dark and dystopian? I mean, I personally didn't necessarily sign up for dark and dystopian. So as far as today, what can we do to help positively transform our near human experience, our near future, knowing that AI soon might just infiltrate our everyday lives. There's a great talk tomorrow night. I know, Chris, you're going to AILA with uh, Todd Terrazis. I don't know if you're familiar with AILA, but he's doing a great panel discussion, I think, on um, AI and society and talking about bias and ethics and privacy and exploring what a fair, accountable, and transparent um, AI system looks like. 
So take a breather. I created this timeline, and there's a lot to it. But I want to walk you through this because I think it gives some context. So in order to talk about today, I want to visit a little bit about yesterday and to give some context on the evolution of traditional engagement and experience in immersive design. Let's start on the left, on the orange box, sort of the beginning of time all the way to the 1950s. We have passive entertainment. So that's Scrabble, Scrabble board games, the opening of Disneyland. This was the core definition of storytelling at its best, human to human. Traditional experience design face to face. In the yellow box, this is sort of welcoming computer gaming. This is computers, computer interaction, computer gaming, the introduction of user interface experience design, HCI. This is Pong and Pac-Man, and these were the days of my first Sony Walkman. I was totally rocking out to the stones. And this is where digital immigrants began. And I actually sit in the digital immigrant camp. In the next box, moving over, the white box is really sort of starting in the mid-90s to today. And this is the beginning of what I call the three eyes era. This is the interactive era, the integrated media era, and the immersive era. This is also where digital natives drop in. So if you were born anytime after 1980, although I think it's more like 83, 84, you're a digital native. But beginning with the white box, from 95 to 2005, every studio in Hollywood opened up their interactive division. I was at DreamWorks at the time and DreamWorks Interactive, and we were most noted for being the first Medal of Honor PSX game. So I didn't know back then, being one of the few girls working on you know, Medal of Honor, what that would become 20 plus years later as a AAA title. But there was no Unreal at the time. We were building engines every game we had a chance to. And there was no out-of-the-box solutions. And right now with AR and VR, I'm seeing a lot of the similar challenges just recycle themselves. And I'm like, we're still doing this? I thought we solved this. Right after the white box, we hit the recession. So the U.S. began to go through one of the worst recessions in history. But the good news for PMs was that this is the first time that user experience, UI and UX, all part of HCI, were silently becoming, you know, the, I mean, they, I don't want to say the big shits, but they were silently getting a name for themselves, you know, in the industry. It was no longer that UI and UX was baked at the end of QA and test, which was formerly what was happening at the time. After um, the recession we move into the darker or the lighter blue box. And what happened after the recession? Apps are what happened. Social media is what happened. You know, integrated media happened. Where currently many dev teams are still operating from. And the uses of all of this integration and this integrated media include gamification, social, data viz, 1.0 to 3.0, projection mapping, geotagging, responsive. You could go on about what was happening during that area and what continues to happen now. But we're sitting in the red dot. We're sitting between integrated media and immersive media right now. So we're moving into this third eye. And I think um, you can see on the bottom right corner, we'll get to it, it says digital imaginatives. It's actually super cool, um, but we'll talk about that. But, but here's the whole point. Immersive media. We're moving into immersive media. Like, what the F? I assume everybody here knows the definition of all of this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, extended reality, and real reality, just in case you didn't know. And so we're in the developer years only of all of this. It's totally overwhelming. So to even overwhelm you some more, this 
is a great slide from a guy named um, Avi Burrell. He's a UX strategist from Microsoft in Israel. And I pinged him because I saw this. And I was like, Avi, can I use this slide? I think it's great. And it gives a great definition for folks. So in the left box in virtual reality, artificially replacing all aspects of real reality, you're fully covered. In augmented reality, you're you know, it's placing images over your existing reality so you're not fully covered. You can see the real world. And of course, mixed reality, your objects in your environment that you're in that's very real appear real, but they're augmented or mixed reality. And of course, XR is everything and above. So it's a simple definition uh, to wrap your head around what feels so out there. So back to the slide. So we had a timeline prior of the past, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about the future because this is the fun stuff. So again, red dot, we're sitting between integrated media and immersive media, and we're just crossing over to mass adoption, maybe 2021 being the tipping point for immersive platforms, and that's still negotiable three years away. It might even be longer. Um, and this is where we come up with digital imaginatives. I was just up at OC5 at Oculus Connect 5. Was anybody there, by the way? It was, it was great. I mean, they showcased a lot of battle gaming. I would hope it would be more social good, but um, there was a guy who was designing AR persistent worlds who was pretty awesome. And he's like, Kathleen, the phrase now is digital imaginatives. He's like, tell me about it. That's awesome. He's like, the tool sets, the processes, the hardware, the software, all of it's taken care of. This next generation gets to grow up and just be creative. It's like, that's pretty rad. Like, sign me up for my, you know, coming back in my next life. So, we're finally tackling immersive at the same time and, and being indoctrinated. Um, how this slide goes is, yes, the first box we talked about integrated media. The next box is immersive. Before we even have a chance, whether we like it or not, to wrap our heads around AR, VR, MR, XR, RR, and that's going to take time, we're being totally indoctrinated into exponential tech, disruptive tech. So human-centered AI and machine learning, spatial computing, persistent worlds, robotics, blockchain, crypto, 3D printing, voice assist, again, driverless cars, multi-user, mixed reality, embodied communications, meaning whatever I do right now, my digital twin is doing also at the same time, intelligent companions. So we're in the beginning about what this looks like, creating human interest stories. And I have to say that I said AI 100 times. It's going to dwarf the last 25 years of digital production. So assuming after this white box, which is disruptive and exponential, another recession will probably hit. That's my guess. Could be wrong. We're going to enter into the middle green box, which is the man merging with machines moment in time. So this is all thanks to Ray Kurzweil, the futurist. And his hypothesis is that the invention of artificial superintelligence, I'm going to read it to you, will abruptly trigger runaway technological growth, resulting in unfathomable changes to human civilization. I don't know if you feel like that's daunting or if that's good. <laughs> but the point is, before we even have a chance to digest that, we're going to be ready for space travel and space colonization, which is already happening right now. So who's developing that? What are they planning? If you check out Maiden Space as a company, they're doing some really great stuff. They're actually, I guess they recognize that the um, compound bond in zero G is stronger than any bond that you could get in this terra firma plant, you know, planted uh, here on Earth. And so they are manufacturing in space and re-importing these compounds back to the United States or the world, not just the United States, but they are a U.S. company, um, to see the value of what we can produce in space. There are so many companies right now that have a um, 
that have their hand in the designing of what space travel and space colonization is going to look like, and it's, and it's a little scary. Um, I also worked with Space Nation in Finland, who were the first civilian astronaut training platform. So any one of us in the room could suit up and go to space. We could do it virtually, and we can do it physically. Um, so here's the whole point. The whole point is that all this, this big S show, <laughs> is going to hit in 27 years. That's 2045. So think about your life from 1991 to today. Everything that you've done since 1991 to today. And maybe you were just out of college like I was. I was totally rocking out to like Naughty by Nature, moving to New Orleans. I did not think about any of this. Maybe you were watching the Rugrats or Ren and Stimpy or something. And maybe you were just in diapers. But everything you've done since 1991 to today, it's that soon that we're talking about all of this change. So maybe it'll matter to you. Not so much. Maybe it'll matter to your kids, or maybe it'll matter to your kids' kids. But the point is, is that we're all going to live through this. So how do we look at this for the next 27 years? I'm going to address what I think are four ways that we can personally contribute some human ingenuity in this brave new world of immersive experiences and storylines. And hopefully, we can conclude with feeling a bit elevated about what we're doing here. So first, from the storytelling and narrative aspect, we have, a lot of, we have a lot of work to do still to understand storytelling and immersive engagement. And these narratives are both for content development as well as for future narratives, even in our office space. About five or six months ago, I was in Estonia, and I met a futures designer. And some folks in the room might know her. Her name is Monica Bielskite. She goes around the world, and she designs futures. And she's pretty rad in a 100 ways. But she put this list together, and it's a little changed, but she put this list together around future storytelling narratives that are so important that we need to like wrap our head around. And why sci-fi dystopian futures were dark, and they lacked this vision about happiness and joyfulness and uplifting palettes and these inclusive narratives. We control all of this. So the first on this list is diversity. And this is not so much about race and culture and sex. This is a new form of diversity, and it's even neurodiversity. I don't know if folks in this room um, have had anybody with autism or any kind of classification of a disability on their team, but it's pretty clear that whether it's a disposition or a temperament or some kind of neurodiversity, the added value on team thinking elevates. And it's a given, and yet we still feel like it's an afterthought. Another future and imperative storytelling narrative is the empowered youth in street culture. And I don't mean kids that are in reaction to gun control. I mean taking a serious look and listening, and I know folks have spoken, have spoken about it today, is doing a better job in surveying rather than having a bias. Um, the definition of gender, you know, gender-neutral non-binary is such a phrase that at least, you know, my nieces and nephews and friends' kids have used, and it's no joke. Some, at OC5, when you checked in, you immediately got a badge of how you want to be identified, and there were more theys and thems in the room, and it wasn't just for, like, you know, shock jock value than there were he's and she's. So when we really switch and understand that this is a new narrative, we can't come from some old bias. Um, Rethinking the human body, man and machine, like we were talking about. The evolution of economics, of course, the free marketplace of decentralized registers. Space travel and space colonization, and how do we want to feel when we actually are able to do that? We haven't even solved our problems here, and we're going to go solve them in space. I laugh about that all the time. And the environmental awareness, you know, biomimicry as far as taking from nature and learning from it versus IoT. How are we going to feel when we walk into a room and the room already knows we're there? Are we even designing for that? <laughs> 
So the second way I feel like we can attain some ingenuity is from a product dev aspect. And there are three tenets and principles that I, I subscribe to in product development, and they're technology, data, and experience. And you can focus on all three of these tenets, but if you don't have a purpose as to why you're doing this, then you're not elevating yourself, the team self. You're not elevating the product. You're certainly not bringing any joy. And you know, too often we're leading with the tool versus we're leading with the purpose. And it's like Simon Sinek's um, TED Talk on, on the why. But you have my permission to ask your boss, frankly, what's the purpose? <laughs> they can call me of your dev cycle or what you're doing. And if you are the boss, I'm totally holding you accountable for some answers. <laughs> Um, the next way is <clears throat> from a business and marketing aspect. So there's an industry enterprise, and we all know this, that's already adopting immersive and disruptive tech. And whether it's education or automotive or logistics or the private sector or consumer entertainment, um, utilities, they're all adopting this next platform of uh, computing. There are so many teams right now that are already playing with WebGL and um, WebXR standards and who are already contributing to immersive web working groups. If anybody listened to the LeapCon um, conference from Magic Leap, there was a lot of talk about this. So it's not just entertainment where AR, VR, MR, XR are being used. So when you're looking at your product end-to-end lifecycle and its use cases, beginning with prototype design and ending with some kind of virtual development or demonstration or workflow guidance, the value proposition is really clear right now. The ROI is a different story. But whether it's product visualization, whether it's interaction, whether it's real-time collaboration, whether it's an individual user workflow, everybody wants some kind of engagement in their product. And AR, VR, MR, XR, you know, just going to say XR, um, gives us that. The last and fourth way that I think that we can add value as PMs in the workplace and can contribute is the skills aspect. So if AI does surpass us in 2045, what's left? Jack Ma, the owner of Alibaba, spoke at the World Economic Forum last year. Did anybody see that? It was actually super strong what he had to say, and I believe it's going to get repeated. He said by 2030, 800 million jobs are going to be taken over by robots. That's 12 years away. That is not far away. And we can't keep teaching computer science thinking that we're going to make some changes. We need to actually focus on the soft skills. So his left side column is what he was referring to. He was referring to values, belief systems, teaching teamwork, care for others, everything that was so soft for so long. My list is on the right. And I firmly believe that teaching creativity, the makerspace, listening, listening and understanding your authentic self, teaching gut intuition. How do you even teach that? There are classes right now to teach you about your gut intuition, and they're not all like the West Side spirituality classes either. <laughs> so if we're all aware of this now, we can script this new movement. We can you know, have a movement, a movement that's baked in human ingenuity and a movement that's baked in creativity. And it's a movement in human potential. It's a movement in possibility. It's a psychology shift. Mostly, we won't just be another episode, fifth season, Black Mirror, that's coming up. Um, we're going to be the writers. We'll be the meta storytellers. We're going to be the connected creators. We're going to be the human engineers, and we'll be the product managers of this near future. So if you trust your intuition, instead of being a puppet, maybe we can make a difference and not just answer to the machine. So this is me. I'm, um, I, was a, I was a happy glass blower once before. I uh, got on the box. I was a painter. I was a muralist. I was a glass blower in industrial design. And then I got on the box in 94 as an animator. 
And I remember a tech guy saying to me, Kathleen, you've got to get on the box. We need creatives. We need people with some ingenuity. We'll teach you all the skills. So while PMs often are coming from engineering or might be coming from marketing or might be um, more aligned with UX, there is a big room for creatives in this space. And I think it's super important. 24 years after animation, between animation and where I am today, if you follow it around from experience design, I worked for the studios as a PM. I opened my own consultancy. I was a digital strategist for a short period of time. I worked on Capitol Hill telling the contemporary story of the U.S. Constitution. I became the big data girl, which no girl ever wants to be called, and then got into XR and now experience design. So at the end of the day, really... Um, I worked recently on an AR project and a VR project that were both for social good, and it really touched me in a way that was super important. And I look to curate joy and ingenuity and human you know, essence and humanity every single day, because without it, technology is still just a tool. So I challenge all of you to have some responsibility as PMs to help move that wheel. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Product Podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.